Hello, thank you for listening. My name is Karin Hoth, and I'm a clinical psychologist in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Iowa. My PhD is in clinical psychology, and then I trained in neuropsychology, the relationship between brain function and behavior. And my clinical and research interests both lie in cognitive functioning among older adults with chronic medical illnesses, and specifically COPD. I don't have any relationships, financial or otherwise, to disclose related to this presentation. So our goals today are going to be to talk about barriers to the recognition of psychosocial issues in older adults with chronic lung disease. We'll um, talk about the most common psychological concerns among older adults that present with chronic lung disease, including depression, anxiety, and cognitive impairment. And lastly, talk about key aspects of integrating psychosocial assessment into treatment and working with older adults with pulmonary disease. So I'll come back to each of these throughout the talk. So first, I'm going to start with a little background about COPD itself. COPD is the third leading cause of morbidity and mortality in the U.S. It's from the 2010 Vital Statistics. Uh, it's prevalent in older adults specifically and is an important cause of hospitalization in those over 65. So approximately 65% of hospital discharges where COPD was listed as the primary cause for discharge were in the population of those over 65. So for those over 65, the prevalence of discharge was four times as great as those from 45 to 64 years old. The prevalence of COPD is increasing in the elderly, and that's, that's for a few reasons. One is long-term oxygen treatment is increasing life expectancy. Of course, life expectancy has increased as well in general, so more adults are living longer with COPD. So given that there's not a cure for COPD, the treatment focuses largely on managing symptoms uh, as well as comorbidities of COPD, such as psychological um, and psychosocial issues. COPD is defined by chronic airflow limitation. Uh, it is progressive, so symptoms are treated to reduce future health events and improve quality of life. And primary symptoms include shortness of breath, cough, um, with sputum production often, um, and exercise limitation. COPD is a multi-system condition, so comorbidities such as cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, and um, psychological concerns do contribute to the overall impact. Say a little bit about diagnosing COPD. Um, the primary definition of COPD is from the Gold Initiative for COPD. In 1998, there was the first comprehensive document talking about the description, diagnosis, risk factors for COPD, um, and that's subsequently been updated. Um, several times. Post-bronchodilator spirometry is required for a diagnosis of COPD. So spirometry measures how much air um, you can blow out and how fast you can blow out that air. It involves a forced breathing maneuver that's 
recorded by a sensor. So people take the deepest breath they can, exhale for as long as possible. Um, FEV1 is the amount of air blown out over the first second that the spirometer is recording, and FVC is the full volume um, forcibly blown out from um, fully breathing in. So the FEV1 over FVC ratio defines the definition in FEV1 percent predicted stages, severity of airflow limitation. In 2011, the gold statement um, introduced COPD grade, which incorporates severity of symptoms, severity of shortness of breath, and the person's history of having exacerbations, acute exacerbations of their respiratory symptoms. So that, that shift to also defining COPD grade um, is a recognition of the complexity of the impact that COPD has for individuals, including but also beyond the airflow limitation that they are experiencing. Smoking is the most common risk factor for COPD, but there is individual susceptibility. So pack years or the amount that someone smokes doesn't directly relate to whether somebody will get COPD or severity. It's an interaction of genetic and other risk factors um, with the smoke exposure, um, as well as other exposure to other particles and gases from the environment, for example. COPD involves a mix of changes in the airways in the lungs, as well as tissue destruction or destruction of the gas exchange surfaces in the lung, which is emphysema. Emphysema is often used um, in the, I guess, general press um, to indicate COPD, but it's really one component of the lung changes that occur um, when someone develops COPD or systemic inflammatory response to particles or gases in the lung. Okay, so now on to our main focus, which is psychosocial concerns in working with older adults with COPD. Why is it important? Well, by virtue of having COPD, people are at an increased risk for psychological disorders and concerns, depression, anxiety, and, and also cognitive impairment. But even in the absence of a diagnosable psychological disorder, issues related to coping and the process of adjusting to having a chronic medical illness are inherent. The presence of a psychological concern in COPD additively reduces quality of life. So people with COPD who have a psychological condition like depression or anxiety have lower quality of life than those that do not. Depression and anxiety are also associated with health behaviors like adherence um, and also more increased difficulty stopping smoking and um, maintaining abstinence from smoking after they've stopped. The presence of depression and anxiety is also associated with medical outcomes um, and reduced treatment seeking for symptoms. Psychosocial concerns are also important because the treatment for COPD and asthma relies on patients' perception of their symptoms, requires that a patient can accurately perceive their symptoms of shortness of, of breath and initiate uh, treatment and join in with making an appropriate 
decision about taking an inhaler. Um, and depression and anxiety can impact that. Psychosocial concerns are also under-recognized in patients with pulmonary disease and in older adults. And that's what we'll turn to talk about now. So first I'd like to share some data that addresses the limited recognition of depression and anxiety in general medicine patients. So Robert Spitzer and his colleagues tested the validity and utility of using the PHQ, a screening measure for um, depression and anxiety. It was developed from the PrimeMD, which is a longer measure for screening in primary care. The PHQ is a self-administered version of the PrimeMD and assesses eight um, psychological disorders. A one-page version is available that covers mood and panic symptoms and takes about one minute for physician review. So in their sample of 2,901 patients, again from General Internal Medicine Clinic, 28% of the sample had PHQ diagnosis. Of those who had uh, PHQ mood disorder, flagged positive for a mood disorder, almost half hadn't been previously recognized by their provider. And 57% of those with an anxiety disorder had not been previously recognized. Um, the patients were asked afterwards if they found the PHQ to be helpful in their physician understanding their condition. And 89% of the patients said the questions were very or somewhat helpful in getting their physician to understand their experience. So the patients did see it as important, generally important for their care, even with uh, less than one, one minute for physician review. Dementia is also underdiagnosed. Data generally, and in this case compiled by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Institute, suggests that 30 to 50 percent of uh, people with dementia aren't diagnosed. A study that was conducted at Nebraska that's mentioned on this slide illustrates this. The researchers administered the MMSE to 230 residents in seven different assisted living facilities and found that, well, they diagnosed cognitive impairment using a cutoff of 24 on the MMSC. So they defined cognitive impairment as a score below 24 on the MMSC. They found that 63% of the residents in the seven assisted living facilities were cognitively impaired. So that's shown on the slide on the left of the screen. Of the people with an MMSC of less than 24, and thus considered to be cognitively impaired, 63% had no cognitive diagnosis, and 75% were untreated for their symptoms. Further, 22% of those who were cognitively impaired were being asked to administer their medications themselves, and only 11% had a surrogate decision maker. So this study documents under-recognition, uh, but also the potential consequences of failing to identify people with dementia. So to determine the extent of underrecognized cognitive impairment in primary medicine and internal medicine, Herman and colleagues asked primary care physicians to identify patients within their practice panels who had no diagnosis or complaints about memory loss. 
The sample of 200 patients that were identified had, were an average of 75 years old, and the patients then underwent a full neuropsychological evaluation to diagnose both dementia and also to diagnose mild cognitive impairment. So you can see there on the slide the prevalence of undetected impairment. There's a total rate of 21% of the 200 patients had previously not recognized dementia or mild cognitive impairment. So there are many reasons for the rate of undiagnosed cases of depression, anxiety, and also dementia. To un better understand those barriers to treatment, again, the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Institute and University of Wisconsin Office of Continuing Professional Development conducted um, a public health statewide needs survey to better understand what the barriers to identification of cognitive impairment were. And what they found were that gaps in current knowledge on the part of treating physicians and treating staff contributed. So questions about ability or how to diagnose people who need further cognitive evaluation, the absence of easy diagnostic tools that could flow within visits, and also lack of knowledge of resources. So if a patient is identified as needing further evaluation or um, intervention related to cognitive impairment, where would I send them? As well as just basic practical obstacles in medical practice with brief appointments and limited reimbursement for time for diagnosis uh, and discussion. And it, as well also limited um, social work and support staff to help transfer Again, make that link between identification of someone, a patient who's in need of further intervention, and linking them up with the intervention. So in addition to the factors that were identified in the needs assessment on the previous slide, I'd also like to add that patients may not volunteer their symptoms or psychosocial concerns due to feeling embarrassed about their symptoms some patients potentially concerned about uh, not wanting to burden their providers with their concerns. But patients will mirror our comfort with talking with them about psychosocial concerns, mood, emotional, and social concerns. If we discuss that in a more straightforward way, that can reduce that barrier. George Alexopoulos and Joanne Surrey have, and their team have studied the challenges to treatment of psychosocial concerns among older adults with chronic medical conditions. Um, and specifically, they found that incorrect assumptions on the part of healthcare providers and patients also can impact the likelihood of treatment for psychosocial concerns. Just an assumption that sadness is an expected reaction to aging and to having a chronic medical condition adjustment and engaging coping skills in the face of chronic illness and aging are expected. Um, however, depression and anxiety are not to be expected. And most older adults continue to have meaningful, satisfying lives. So that assumption by both providers and potentially also on the part of patients can result in dismissing important symptoms. For some patients, cognitive impairment 
may also complicate a patient's recognition and ability to report about their own symptoms. And denial can also play a part. Older adults may also have more concerns or misconceptions about the side effects of antidepressants and thus be less likely to bring up concerns or side effects that they're experiencing. Concern about stigma can also be a barrier to identification and addressing uh, psychosocial concerns in other adults and the general population as well. Okay, so we've talked about barriers to the recognition of psychosocial issues in older adults and people with chronic medical illness. Now we'll move on to the second point, talking about common psychological concerns among older adults presenting with chronic lung disease and what may be driving factors that underlie them. Most common psychological conditions in this population are anxiety and depression and cognitive impairment. Before we move on to talking about anxiety and depression, I just wanted to make a distinction between psychological symptoms that are of sufficient concern to warrant diagnosis and specific intervention around anxiety and depression, and also just the general continuum of adjustment to chronic medical illness. But I think whether or not someone meets criteria for a psychological disorder and if they need referral is an important consideration, but I think it's also very helpful as we work with older adults with chronic medical conditions to move beyond that and consider the continuum of psychosocial issues, adjustment to illness, what's the impact of the illness for the, the person, and what are some of the practical concerns that may be affecting their functioning social status, and life concerns, uh, and asking those questions beyond just whether they meet a specific um, specific criteria for diagnosis. So that said, it is of course important to identify psychological disorders. So here's some information about the prevalence of um, the most common conditions, depressive disorder and anxiety disorder, um, and more specifically in chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, panic disorder, which you can see the rates there, 25% uh, meeting criteria for panic disorder, which is 10 times the rate in the general population. And asthma as well, depression and anxiety are most common conditions. Patients with depression and anxiety have poorer clinical outcomes than patients with respiratory illness alone, including an impact on quality of life, health behaviors, and clinical outcomes including readmission to the hospital following an exacerbation, some evidence of increased mortality from COPD for patients who have depression and anxiety in addition to meeting criteria for COPD. And depression and anxiety are also associated with increased perception of shortness of breath. Since shortness of breath even at low levels of physical activity can be a typical feature of chronic lung disease. Progressive avoidance of activity is a common feature that leads to a cycle of feeling short of breath, avoiding activity, further deconditioning, and then thus greater shortness of breath with exertion or with activity. And anxiety and depression can contribute to that cycle 
particularly activity avoidance and, and a greater sense of shortness of breath. So in many cases, it's challenging to disentangle a patient's shortness of breath. Is that driven by respiratory symptoms or um, psychological considerations? We do know that pulmonary function testing doesn't differentiate who's most likely to have depression and anxiety. It's not a strong relationship there. Greater disability or activity reduction can go more strongly along with depression and anxiety despite um, the person's actual pulmonary function testing results or, or airflow limitation. Patients with anxiety do have some common features that have been identified greater fears about the consequences of dyspnea, more catastrophic thoughts um, with the experience of dyspnea, that they may die when they feel short of breath, which there certainly is some grain of truth to shortness of breath and experiencing an exacerbation having implications, but shifting that perception, there's room for intervention there and what the patient's expectation is and intervening related to the catastrophic thinking. How a patient thinks about and interprets their experience of their symptoms is important. So Smaller has talked about three models that link panic, panic disorder, and shortness of breath um, in people who have chronic pulmonary conditions. So two biological models include hypersensitivity to carbon dioxide and also to hyperventilation. So these theories um, suggest that potentially people who develop panic may have an underlying biological vulnerability and that then the presence of chronic pulmonary disease unmasks that vulnerability. And basically repeated exposure to increased carbon dioxide may trigger a sensitive alarm system in their brain. There's also a cognitive behavioral model explaining the link between panic and dyspnea um, that relates to that catastrophic misinterpretation of physical symptoms and particularly the experience of shortness of breath. So the high level of panic symptoms that patients with COPD or chronic uh, asthma may experience might reflect increased opportunities for those patients to misinterpret their body sensations and their pulmonary symptoms because of repeated episodes of respiratory symptoms. So why is there an elevated rate of depression in COPD beyond that of many other chronic medical illnesses? First, many patients may have a genetic predisposition to depression, which may also predispose them to smoking behavior. So people who are depressed are more likely to smoke and also have a harder time uh, stopping smoking once they've started. Second, depression may relate to the losses associated with COPD, loss of functional independence, um, and also self-image with oxygen treatment is also important for patients' perception of themselves and their mood. And finally, COPD has direct impact on the brain. Patients with COPD have greater rates of white matter hyperintensities on neuroimaging or subcortical changes on structural MRI of the brain, and that um, has been thought to relate to potential vascular depression um, from systemic changes in, in vascular functioning, including in the brain.
so a more direct impact biologically of COPD on the brain itself. A group led by Georgia Alexopoulos has studied factors that affect treatment of depression in older adults with COPD. They developed a treatment for depression in COPD as the model of chronic illness. So first, they identified key challenges in treating depression in older adults with COPD, including physical disability from the chronic illness being exacerbated by depression, that cycle that we were talking about a little bit earlier, which can be a barrier also to treatment adherence, attending appointments, and making the suggested changes in activity. Demoralization or resignation is a common experience of people who are depressed. So the sense that the situation can't be changed. Also, problem-solving skills can impact um, ability to make changes or improve patient situation. Um, and cognitive difficulties can, for some individuals, be a part of that. And hesitance to engage in treatment can also be a challenge. So a study in 2003 that's cited on this slide found that in a sample of elderly patients with COPD who had depression, 72% initially had refused antidepressant treatment when it was offered for the first time. So the treatment that Alexopoulos developed needed to address the interacting problems that were mentioned on the last slide. The intervention had to meet people at their level of cognitive status. And given the limited acceptance of medication, the authors thought that this suggested an important role and opportunity for behavioral treatment and social support. Their model includes problem-solving therapy components. So the focus here is managing problems that are contributing to life adversity for the patients and improving their ability to initiate and follow through and complete tasks. And also adherence enhancement. So areas of poor medical adherence were identified as well as the reason for adherence. Was it need for instruction around taking medications? Was it limited access or ability to refill prescriptions or get medications that were contributing? Or the belief that the medications won't help related to the demoralization mentioned on the last slide. There's nothing I can do or this treatment won't really help me anyway. So the adherence piece was another place that they intervened. Six areas are addressed in this treatment. Misconceptions about COPD and the treatment of depression. Practical obstacles, um, getting in the way of following through with treatment and improving situation. Denial of the need for uh, treatment of depression. Guilt and stigma around COPD and depression, cognitive distortions, and also poor mobility and function due to physical limitations. Okay, so we've talk, been talking now under point number two about depression and anxiety, and now we'll move on to talking about cognitive impairment in COPD and what the literature tells us about what underlies cognitive impairment. So, 
patients, particularly elderly patients with obstructive lung diseases, are at increased risk for cognitive impairment for several reasons. The, the general risk factor of older age, direct effects of the disease, including reduced oxygen saturation and others that we'll talk about in a little bit. They may also have secondary symptoms from COPD, like fatigue or depression or anxiety, that subsequently impact their cognitive functioning and potentially medication or treatment effects as well. Rate of cognitive impairment among um, samples of patients with COPD is actually quite high, ranging from 50 to 65 percent, depending upon the sample and when they're captured after an exacerbation or for general outpatient appointments. But that's not the rate of dementia diagnosis, but people who demonstrate some areas of cognitive impairment. Um, one thing that's important to recognize is that the pattern of cognitive impairment in COPD involves more than just memory loss. The most consistently identified areas of cognitive impairment are abstract reasoning and problem solving, uh, planning ability, sometimes referred to as executive function, the higher order planning problem solving, as well as processing speed. That cognitive impairment exists beyond depression. So even patients who are not depressed do show cognitive, some cognitive changes in some cases. So one reason that this pattern is important to recognize is we're often think to potentially ask about memory loss in older adults, but failing to ask about other aspects of thinking may potentially miss some of the changes that patients with chronic lung disease are experiencing. There is evidence that cognitive impairment has an impact on functioning in patients with COPD, including impairment in activities of daily living, as well as adherence to medication. Now I'm going to talk about a study from the Mayo Clinic that examined risk for mild cognitive impairment in a large population-based cohort. The goal was to prospectively examine whether COPD diagnosis and duration of COPD is associated with development of mild cognitive impairment prospectively. The group did publish baseline results. The focus of this is prospective new development of mild cognitive impairment. So this, these data are from the Mayo Clinic study on aging and included 1,420 70 to 89-year-olds in Olmsted County, Minnesota, who were cognitively intact at the baseline uh, time point. The mean follow-up for these individuals was five, approximately five years. Cognitive assessments were done every 15 months that uh, included nine neuropsychological tests across four different domains to diagnose mild cognitive impairment. So amnestic MCI was identified, so reduction in the memory domain, and also non-amnestic MCI it was not a reduction in the memory domain. So the authors of the study found that a diagnosis of COPD at baseline, which was um, made via medical chart review, significantly increased the risk for de new development of non-amnestic MCI by 83%. You can see the hazard ratio on the slide, but not of any 
mild cognitive impairment, broadly or of amnestic MCI. So COPD at baseline increased the risk for development of non-amnestic MCI over the follow, average follow-up of five years. They also found a dose-response relationship, which is interesting, so that those who had COPD for longer than five years had the greatest increased risk to develop non-amnestic MCI during the follow-up period. So what's underlying risk of cognitive impairment in COPD? Well, in general, worse disease is associated with, with worse cognition. Um, and an obvious potential factor is hypoxemia or decreased blood oxygenation. And it is indeed associated with worse cognitive difficulties. Many studies have looked at um, FEV1 as the defining, given that it's the defining measure um, for the diagnosis of COPD. Um, and that has less consistent relationships, which probably isn't surprising. Hypoxemia identified in the blood is probably closer to impacting the brain. Another area that supports the idea that hypoxemia is related to cognitive impairment is that we do see a cognitive benefit from long-term oxygen therapy. Now, who exactly shows this benefit isn't yet identified. Many of those studies are um, from several decades ago. So I think more work is needed to see who specifically are the ones that have the cognitive benefit from long-term oxygen therapy. We also know that hypoxemia isn't the whole story in relation to cognition. There are some inconsistent correlations be between hypoxemia and cognition. We also know that non-hypoxic COPD patients do also show, on average, um, cognitive deficits relative to those without COPD. And treatment studies that have looked at physiological factors um, that have changed with treatment in relation to change in cognition with treatment have seen improvement in cognition without a corresponding change in pulmonary function. There is some evidence that cardiovascular fitness may be related to treatment improvement after rehab, um, which we'll get back to. And cardiovascular disease is one of the most common comorbidities of COPD. So that's a likely uh, additional driving force for increased cognitive risk. So within the past five years, the literature has called for broader scope models um, to understand cognitive impairment and the underlying uh, COPD-related physiology driving it that incorporates vascular function in addition to pulmonary function. Systemic inflammation occurs in COPD. Uh, that's likely involved, cardiovascular disease, and also treatment. Another factor that is important to look at is often resting blood oxygenation is measured in relation to cognition. But that may not reflect what the patient's body and brain particularly are experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis if they have drops in their oxygen levels with exercise or overnight, um, which can be common. So that's another area that needs more study. So I mentioned previously that we do see some improvement in cognition following oxygen therapy. There's some evidence for that. Somewhat more recently, Emory and colleagues looked at an exercise training program. 
And it was a 10-week exercise training program among 28 patients with COPD. They were then at the end of the intervention given a prescription to continue exercise on their own. And they were followed up a year later. At the year follow-up, 11 had continued to exercise. So 39% continued exercise over that time. And interestingly, the participants who were adherent to their exercise uh, experienced increased functional capacity, increased cognitive and psychological function over that year follow-up, suggesting that the maintenance of exercise intervention over time is important for the for the for cognition. Okay, in this final section, I'll try to illustrate some of what we've talked about using examples from an interdisciplinary COPD treatment team that I have been a part of in the past. So specifically, I'll focus on um, health and behavior intervention as, as well as cognitive in intervention and some pointers that, that we can take from incorporating psychosocial assessment to working with patients with COPD. So in that treatment setting, all patients were um, assessed and evaluated for general health and behavior concerns and also the need for smoking cessation. On an as-needed basis, additionally, patients might receive consultation with a psychiatrist for evaluation and treatment, medication treatment, of um, anxiety and depression commonly or other psychological concerns. As needed, if patients were experiencing cognitive symptoms and they and their family had concerns or um, their treatment provider had concerns, patients would receive a cognitive evaluation, a couples intervention, or also cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia and sleep disturbance, which may occur in patients with COPD and can sometimes not be recognized or uh, not treated and then end-of-life um, and palliative care when needed. So specific health and behavior concerns that were addressed included concerns about mood and anxiety, sleep and memory concerns, um, practical concerns like finances, um, insurance, need, medical insurance needs, and then patients were asked to identify if they had any concerns about their medical treatment, difficulty communicating with providers, uh, barriers to taking their medications, concerns about adjusting to oxygen, any upcoming medical procedures, concerns about end of life, social concerns, and then also substance use. And then a general question about areas to help manage an illness. This is a, um, items on a background questionnaire that we would use to identify concerns that could then be followed up with more discussion. So um, during the general health and behavior interview, a good place to start is what are you hoping to get to the patient? What are you hoping to get or receive as a result of your COPD evaluation or your COPD treatment? It's a helpful starting point to see what patients' expectations are um, to open the door for further discussion. Also, just asking what has the impact of COPD been on your life can be a helpful place to start. And then during the discussion, 
asking about social support, a screen for depression and anxiety, changes in memory, um, or th broader thinking ability to go beyond just memory concerns, and any goals that the patient has or barriers to making changes related to their COPD treatment. The role in this interdisciplinary treatment clinic of the neuropsychologist for cognitive evaluation was specific, again, for those patients where they, their family members, or um, medical provider nursing. Um, nurses had concerns about their cognitive functioning, involved in interview, um, paper and pencil cognitive testing, including beyond memory and a brief screen, but also attention executive functioning, visuospatial functioning, language, and processing speed. And the goal would be to identify contributing factors, comorbid conditions, depression, anxiety, sometimes to determine whether there may be an additional neurodegenerative condition, such as Alzheimer's disease occurring, or driven by COPD or other factors, more likely level of independence and functioning that may be appropriate given the person's cognitive status, and recommendations to help facilitate treatment, understanding, and follow-through for their COPD and medical uh, intervention going forward. I'd like to say a little bit um, about helping older adults cope specifically. Um, and this is from an article that was published in 1998 specific to psychosocial concerns um, in older adults. So this is written in a very narrative style as tips, basically, for providers. So relatively fewer patients over age 70 are offered behavior change. So despite the fact that older adults do show a response to exercise, including a psychosocial benefit, and are likely to adhere. Also, a tip of asking patients and families about how they're functioning and how their medical illness has impacted them and being prepared for complexity related to the practical issues. Recognizing that being depressed is different from being older. And um, in the past, in previous slides, we talked about that assumption being incorrect and helping patients and their families recognize that that can be a bias so as not to dismiss symptoms of depression, mood, anxiety as being important. So assessing substance issues are important. And the authors found that substance use concerns are diagnosed at a lower rate in older adults than in younger adults. Recognizing the importance of patient sexuality and health and behavior evaluation and discussion with patients. Presenting material in a manner that's appropriate for their cognitive or learning style. And including as a part of the discussion concerns about end of life and death. There's some additional tips for um, evaluating health and behavior, coping, as well as psychological concerns or conditions in older adults. I'm going to end with a case example of an older gentleman who was seen in our interdisciplinary COPD clinic that involved health and behavior evaluation, how that played in, as well as the cognitive evaluation, um, and how that dovetailed with the person's broader uh, medical treatment. This is a 74-year-old 
divorced male who had a six-year history of COPD. His COPD had been diagnosed during a hospitalization for respiratory problems, difficulty breathing. And it was at that time that he was told he had COPD. It's identified. He described a downward spiral after that point, as did his primary care physician who had referred him. He also had hypertension, hearing loss, and was currently smoking. The primary care physician raised a question of post-traumatic stress disorder related to his hospitalization and also potential ADHD. So he was having difficulty tracking and sticking to his medical treatment. So the health and behavior evaluation identified that the patient himself was hoping for care for his physical and mental health incorporated together because he had recognized this downward spiral, to use his words. The psychologist who saw him identified depression, referred him on for both medication and psychotherapy for his depression. PTSD was not clear. Specifically, he, the patient described depression being more related to his perceived change in health status. He felt unmotivated because he had a core belief that nothing would help his symptoms in COPD, that it was a chronic condition and that there was nothing he could do. So there was a shift in the discussion to talk about actively seeking information for coping, reducing symptoms to improve his quality of life, even in the context of a chronic, chronic condition. A neuropsychological or cognitive evaluation revealed that there was no evidence of a global decline in his cognition. He had intact language and memory uh, and visual-spatial skills. His primary areas that were weaker were slowing in his cognitive processing and also some reductions in executive functioning, that planning and set-shifting ability to multitask. The contributing factors given that profile looked to be primarily COPD, his potentially his hyper hypertension, depression, and anxiety, and alcohol use was also identified. So pointed away from an additional neurodegenerative condition, such as Alzheimer's disease. There wasn't evidence of ADHD specifically, because his concerns hadn't predated or, or begun prior to the development of more significant COPD, and had had a very gradual onset in relation to his medical concerns. So he was counseled about this and actually gave him um, some hope and he felt good about knowing that information. That's a little you know, description that illustrates the potential role of addressing health and behavior and cognitive concerns in the context of working with a patient with COPD. Okay. So in summary, we've talked about first barriers to under recognition of anxiety, depression, and cognitive concerns in COPD. The primary barriers being practical barriers in medical practice with short visits, concerns about limited resources for treatment, incorrect assumptions about older adults, so incorrectly assuming that sadness is expected, or incorrectly assuming behavior change will not be effective, for older adults and not offering that as an option. Denial and hesitance regarding medication treatment.
We talked about how the most common psychological concerns in patients with chronic lung disease or depression, anxiety, and panic specifically, um, and that those symptoms aren't necessarily related directly to pulmonary function. So screening broadly, regardless of severity of lung disease, is important to ask and open that door. That cognitive impairment is also common. We talked about aspects of health and behavior evaluation um, in patients with COPD, asking about the impact of COPD in their life, what the patient's expectations are for treatment, and what coping skills have they been using as a way to open the door to that discussion. From the cognitive literature, we know that there's relatively high prevalence of cognitive impairments among older adults with COPD. And importantly, that the cognitive domains that are affected are not just, just memory, but processing speed and executive functioning as well. The cognitive literature supports that there can be some improvement with uh, oxygen treatment and rehabilitation, but that specifically there's a need to maintain exercise after pulmonary rehabilitation. So helping patients identify sources of ongoing support to continue exercise and adhering to their treatment regimen is important. Thank you for your time.